Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. The text known traditionally as the Lord's Prayer. Wherever Christianity has taken root, you will find Christians gathered together to read, sing, learn, and pray using the Lord's Prayer. Every Sunday morning at 1045, a group of believers gather downstairs to worship God in Farsi or Persian. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray like this. ای پدر ما که در آسمانی نام تو مقدس باد ملکوت تو بیاید اراده تو چنان که در آسمان است بر زمین نیز کرده شود نان کفاف ما را امروز به ما بده و قرض های ما را ببخش چنان که ما نیز قرضداران خود را میبخشیم و ما را در آزمایش میآور بلکه از شریر ما را رهاییده زیرا ملکوت و قوت و جلال تا ابد الابد از آن توست آمین Well, it was a quick change between services after baptism. I had a suit and tie First service, and uh, the people in first service said, oh, you look so nice. And then I got out of the baptistry tank, and someone said, you should preach in gym shorts and that T-shirt you're wearing. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll balance the difference somehow for a second hour. <laughs> I know many of you have been anxiously waiting to hear what I think about this, so now I can let you know, uh, I am not a big fan of LeBron James. Uh, for those of you who don't follow basketball, LeBron James is uh, probably the best player in the NBA. He has won four times uh, the NBA Most Valuable Player Award, two Olympic gold medals, an NBA scoring title. He is the all-time NBA playoff scoring leader. He has 14 times been an all-star. He came to the NBA directly out of high school, won Rookie of the Year award, and is the youngest player ever to have scored 20,000 points. He is probably the greatest basketball player of his generation. But man, does he love to tell about being the greatest basketball player of his generation. <laughs> in the 2015 championships, when uh, LeBron's team was in danger of being eliminated, an interviewer had asked him, how he felt going into this do-or-die game. And he said, well, it's simple. I feel confident because I'm the best player in the world. Oh, okay. Uh, after his team had lost the championship, he was asked who should win the MVP. And James said, well, I should. And after uh, this most recent uh, event, I discovered he's on uh, the cover of NBA 2K19, uh, the latest version of the uh, software uh, video game for uh, basketball on all different platforms. His picture is on the cover, surrounded by all kinds of phrases that he picked out for himself, like king and chosen one and goat, which means greatest of all time. There's something in us, right, that, that just rubs us the wrong way about people acknowledging their own greatness and, and wanting us to acknowledge it with them. 
C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the psalm, says this, We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd that surround every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. And yet within us, there is this nature to gratify, to celebrate, to adore, to admire, to glorify. The question is where we direct that impulse. The French Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montaigne said, man is certainly stark mad. He cannot make a worm, yet he will be making gods by the dozens. Now, maybe we think that doesn't really have much to do with us. It doesn't sound like us. It sounds like idolatry, you know, golden statues long ago and far away. But we've been in this series in the Lord's Prayer, looking at Jesus' model prayer for his disciples. And uh, last week, John Crocker did a fantastic job helping us see just how amazing, how wonderful it is that we could know God as a father, as loving and kind and gracious and committed to our good. And this week we come to this first direction or petition in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. Joey and I were talking about this passage and noted that's in the subjunctive mood, which expresses a word or a desire, and we tried really hard to come up with some kind of a joke about subjunctive mood grammar, but we failed miserably, so there it is. Hallow is a word that we don't use much anymore. It means to revere, to recognize as special, to acknowledge as worthy of praise. We, we do use some of it. Uh, sometimes we talk about military cemeteries being hallowed ground, set apart, special in some way. So Jesus is saying, pray, God, may your name be revered. May it be honored. And it's not just a, a collection of sounds that we might think of as a name. It's, you know, it's not just a label like it often is in English. In, in the Bible, a name communicates something essential about a person. So Moses' name in Hebrew sounds like to draw out because he was drawn out of the water in that basket by Pharaoh's daughter. Abraham means father of a multitude. And Jesus' name in Hebrew, Joshua, or Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. Which points us back to the third commandment, to not take the name of the Lord in vain. The Hebrew believers in the Old Testament were so concerned with this that they would not even pronounce Yahweh, God's name for himself. They would print it in the text and then read it as Adonai, God, which is where we end up with Jehovah, which is a weird mishmash of letters and vowels from two different words for God. After the Jewish scribes copied the name of Yahweh in the text, they would wash their hands as a sign of respect and, and honoring God. But but it's not, again, just about a name or a word. To, to pray that God's name would be hallowed is to ask that God himself would be known and loved and revered and worshipped and, and made much of. And because Jesus tells us to pray this, that means it isn't happening. That's why he tells us to pray it. God isn't loved and honored and revered and, and worshipped as he ought to be. And, I don't think any of us would deny that God ought to be revered and honored and worshipped. 
Hardly anyone is going to say that, oh, God should be secondary and, you know, I can have him off to the side of my life. But God isn't first and foremost, or Jesus wouldn't tell us to pray this. And since Jesus is giving this prayer to his followers, it's not just about those people out there. It's about us in here. Jesus' prayer is all about reorienting us. In this section in Matthew's gospel, it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this whole picture of life in the kingdom and what living under God's good and gracious rule looks like. And so this prayer is meant to form us. It assumes we have a problem. The problem is we don't really admire and love and revere and hallow God like he ought to be. And the reason for this is because we come into this world with a certain mindset, a certain perspective. It, we're not born into this world necessarily ruling out God or what the Bible says about morality, but it's a mindset that starts with us. We come into this world with ourselves at the center. And I am the starting point for my life. My problems are problems because they don't align with my rights and desires and expectations. That's what makes them problems, right? Something is out of sync with me and the way things ought to be going with my life. And success and blessing mean things are going the way I think they ought to be going. You know, uh, road construction season is now in full swing in Indiana, right? This is our fifth season of the year. And uh, I've been humbled to be confronted with how impatient I can be when I'm driving. The, ra the traffic's not going as fast as I would like, and, and it's frustrating. And this person that is refusing to let me merge in when it's going from two lanes to one lane, and I've got my blinker on, and they see there's no way for me to go, man, I just, that's upsetting, right? It's, it's frustrating. Think about the last time that you got angry or hurt or disappointed. Wasn't it because your plans were interrupted, your personhood was invalidated, or your sense of morality was offended? Maybe it's not just LeBron James who thinks that he's a king who needs to be admired and listened to. See, the whole world and, and the way that we see it in successes and problems, in good and bad, in delightful and in ugly, it all starts from, it's all oriented around my rights, my expectations. That's our natural condition. It's what the Bible in Romans 8 calls the sinful mind, the mind of the flesh. And it's so subtle, it's, it's so common in us that we don't even know we have it. And we don't realize we have it until it collides with another perspective, which jumps off of every page of this Bible. The biblical perspective is not simply that God exists or the Bible is true. I mean, Satan believes that God exists and that the Bible is true. It's, it's a mindset that begins with a radically different starting point. To recognize God and his rights as creator. God and his goals as ruler and director of all things is the center of reality and the center of existence. Everything is defined by him. Everything is measured by him. And one of the things that will help us is 
to pause regularly and just reflect on that. The astonishing reality that, that there is a God who is above and outside and beyond us and everything that has been created. We and the whole universe with all its galaxies and down to the subatomic level are all contingent. We are all secondary. We are all dependent on this God who created us. I am who I am, God said to Moses. Tell them I am has sent you, the one who exists eternally. That's when you see in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, I can't do hand motions for it. When you see it in all caps, that's Yahweh, God's name for himself, built off of the Hebrew word for I am. So over and over, when you see that in the Bible, it's a reminder of this personal name of God, that he is the ultimate reality. He is the source of all light and life. Everything else, including us in this universe, is secondary and contingent and dependent. Everything else is small. It helps us, I think Jesus is encouraging us, to, to think about the, the nature of God, his character, that, that he is omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He is all-knowing, he's omniscient, and and he's all-powerful in his all-knowing. And he is present everywhere at all times, which we can hardly even imagine physically, but that extends to time as well. God exists from our perspective in past, present, and future all at the same time. That, that's an amazing God. And, and, and it's not like, you know, he just he has to pick which one of those he's going to use, like some superpower, you know, that a Marvel hero has, like... Or maybe it's a, a golf club and he's going to decide which club to pick out. Well, I'm, I'm, I need omniscient in this situation. And maybe I need wisdom over here. No, he has all of them, all the time, completely and perfectly, eternally. He is always, ever-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. But we don't always live as though that's the God that we know and worship in Jesus Christ. In his commentary on this passage... John Green points out that there's an echo here of Ezekiel 36, a passage that you may not have memorized. But in it, God is talking to his people who have been taken into exile. And he says, I will sanctify my great name. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh when through you I display my holiness. And the amazing thing is God is saying this to people whom God has just earlier said are the ones that have profaned his name among the nations, and that's why they're in exile, because they've blown it, because we don't hallow God, because we don't revere him. But God's commitment is to reestablish the holiness of his name through a people who actually bring shame on it. And so we come before God humbled. We recognize that he alone is worthy of adoration, and, and we see how much we adore ourselves. Man, confession time, isn't that what so much of our social media interaction is about? How many likes, how many retweets can I get, and I feel better about myself if I get more thumbs up, and, and if somebody's wrong on the internet, I have to go correct them. And We fix our eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. 
We point ourselves to God and who he is and most of all what he's done for us on the cross. See, our father means, look at how loving he is. Look at how merciful he is. Look at how patient he is. Look at, look at how he stoops low to our level because he loves us. But he's our father in heaven, which is a reminder that he is awesome and glorious and majestic. Look at how high he stands. Look at his power. And, and the beauty of adoration is that the more you see his greatness and glory, the more it makes his love so amazing. And the more you see how deep his love is, the more it enhances his glory and holiness. God is a perfect God who will not abide evil. He never winks at sin. He never shrugs at cruelty. Every sin will be punished, God tells us. And unless we are holy, there is judgment and hell waiting for us. But he's also a God who would take hell into his own heart. A God who would send his own son to suffer and die and take on himself the wrath that we deserve so that we could be saved. The more holy you see him, the more awesome his love is. And the more you see the depth of his love, the more amazingly you see his glory and his holiness. And this is a point where we're going to pause in the message to celebrate in the Lord's Supper how awesome and holy that God lowered himself to save us. You have to praise. Everybody praises something. We're made for worship. So as God's people, what would it look like to hallow him in our lives? Pastor Tim Keller suggests one of the ways to find out what you really adore is to see what you focus on in secret when you're all alone. Because remember, the context is these religious hypocrites who love to do their acts of piety in order to be seen, and they have received their reward. So what is it that I focus on? What is it that I love that my heart goes toward in private when I don't have to be thinking about anything else? Is it a nicer home? A second home, you dream of being admired, desired, loved by someone. You dream about financial security or business success or, man, if that person who hurt me could get what they have coming to them. What do you dream of? What do you desire, long for? It's a hint of what we hallow, of what we admire. And if it's not God, one of the things that will happen is it will tend only to pray when that thing that we really ultimately love and value is threatened. And we'll only praise when the thing that we love and value is showing up in our lives. And I've been convicted as I look at this because Jesus says true prayer is when I love and admire and delight in God the most. You want to enjoy him. You want to adore him. He is the supreme thing in your life. You find him great and good and trustworthy and delightful. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Before we come to give us our daily bread or forgive us our sins. 
not just because it's a way of, you know, sort of buying God off and getting him to listen to us, God forbid, not because it's, you know, just an order that we're supposed to follow and it kind of makes sense, but because adoration, because worship is supposed to frame all of our prayer and ultimately all of our lives. Petition is about how we look at the world and confession is about how we look at other people and ourselves. And Jesus is saying the problems that we have in relating to the world, relating to others, relating to ourselves, are problems of adoration. You know, as a pastor, I've uh, heard a lot of people tell me over the years, I, you know, I've prayed to God and I know the Bible says he's forgiven me for that sin and I've repented, I've turned away from it and other people have told me they've forgiven me but I just can't forgive myself. I've been there myself. Maybe some of you have. I won't ask for a show of hands. What is it that you hallow, admire the most? Maybe it's business success or financial security or romance or your love life or your family or maybe it's needing to be right and prove other people wrong. Maybe it's needing to have an identity as, as a good parent or a good spouse. And whatever it is that you hallow controls your life. It defines you. It, it will run you. And you'll feel like you don't need to confess if you think you're living up to the standard of that thing that you're hallowing. And if you don't live up to the standard of that thing that's at the center of your identity, you'll be racked with guilt and inability to forgive yourself and inability to believe that God could forgive you. Anything that you hallow more than God will distort your view of yourself and distort confession so that it might even become full of pride and self-righteousness like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, right? I thank you, God, that I'm not like those people. Or... Or you'll be just filled with guilt and, and disbelief that God could ever forgive me and use me again. I can't forgive myself means the thing that I am valuing can't forgive me. I've not lived up to the standard. I violated it. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive me. I read a story, a tragic story of a young mom called Abby who was a caring mother to Beverly, her foster daughter, she turned her back for just a minute and Beverly fell in the pool in the backyard and drowned. Abby blamed herself, she said. Bev was our foster daughter. I'd been entrusted with caring for her. I felt like I was a horrible mother. I was a horrible person. That God was obviously disappointed in me. I was defective and I questioned my worthiness as a mother. I was supposed to protect my children. And she fell into depression and self-harm. And maybe we could understand those feelings. Hopefully we could empathize and have compassion for her. But do you see the real struggle that she's fighting is that her sense of identity as a trustworthy, good mother is what's keeping her from believing that God could forgive her. I didn't do what I should have done. And I, I don't measure up to this idea of myself that I'm hallowing, and so God's not being hallowed. I can't believe that he could forgive me. If she could really say, hallowed be your name, Father, then she could say, forgive us our sins. 
We do adoration before we get to petition to give us this day our daily bread. What, what is bread? I mean, obviously it's a delicious carbohydrate that goes to my hips too quickly. <laughs> but beyond that, bread in the context is daily sustenance. It's what you need to live, right? That's why Jesus is not saying give us our daily dessert. I mean, that's a legitimate prayer, I hope. I mean, daily chocolate, right? We're all up for that. But Jesus is saying, no, we're really praying for daily bread, not bread pudding, not, not ice cream, but what I need to live. And I, and I talk to people at times as a pastor and a friend, and they say, I pray and I pray and I keep turning this over to God and, and I'm, I'm asking God to do this, but I have no peace about it. I'm not sure God is hearing me. Well, what might be going on there? Sometimes, maybe, it's because we're going to God and saying, God, I've got to have this business deal come through. God, you have to fix my kids. God, you've got to solve this problem for me. God, you have to help me get this under control, or I can't go on. It's become bread. It's become life to you. And you're telling yourself, I need it to live. I'm hallowing it. No wonder I don't have any peace because I keep praying about it and I need it, but I don't have it. And that happens with health or finances or career or romance or grades or anything. Whatever you hallow, Whatever you put at the center of your life runs your life. And if you think about losing that thing, you go to pieces. You know, I can't, I can't imagine that life without this thing, this outcome. And, and that's why we have no peace when we pray about it. Because God says, present your requests to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts. And I make those requests known, but it's not getting any better. I'm eaten up with worry. It's a problem of adoration. I've got to demote my request out of the central place in my life that I've given it and let Jesus be what I'm hallowing in the middle of that need and that situation and that problem. I need to be able to trust that God is still trustworthy and good and he's a loving father even if he says no. And the thing doesn't happen that, that feels so important to me because that, does that make sense that that's the key? That so much of our struggle, our failures of adoration, because we get our lives out of perspective. And hallowing, adoration, worship of God is what puts things in the right place. And, and it's not just convincing ourselves of something to feel better. It's not just happy talk. And, and this matters because this is going to go on forever. C.S. Lewis, one more time in Reflections on the Psalm, says, Heaven is a state in which angels now and people hereafter are perpetually praising God. Now, get out of your head pictures of, you know, angels floating on clouds with harps. It, and it doesn't mean it's like being in church forever. I mean, as much as we love being here on Sunday, our services, Lewis says, both in their conduct and in our ability to participate in them, are merely attempts at worship. Never fully successful. To see what heaven really means, we must imagine ourselves to be in perfect love with God. 
drunk in, drowned with, dissolved by delight which flows out of us effortlessly and endlessly. The old catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Fully to enjoy God is to glorify him. And in telling us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him, to delight in him because he is good. We praise what we enjoy because the praise completes the enjoyment, Lewis says. It's incomplete. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Think about this, how frustrating it is to have discovered a great movie or a great book and to have no one to share it with. To to turn around a corner on a road and, and see some glorious mountain view and not be able to express it because the people you're riding with could care about it no more than a can in the ditch of the road, Lewis says. It is one of the sorrows of my life that I cannot seem to find enough people who appreciate my dad jokes. And, and maybe someday in heaven they will be there, or, or maybe God will redeem my bad sense of humor and, and perfect it. Because God is the source of all laughter. He's the source of all joy, all life, all fulfillment, all beauty, all goodness. Hell is the absence of God. Hell is not fun. Hell is boring. It is empty. It is dead. It is being constantly and eternally swallowed in on yourself forever. And God is inviting us out of that self-made hell into adoration of him who is light and life and joy and beauty. Worship, adoration, hallowing God enables us to see who we are honestly and yet be able to accept it. Adoration makes us able to see the world as it is and yet trust that God is still good and he is at work Adoration heals our hearts. Praise him. Praise him. Oh, praise the Lord. Father, thank you that you are both great and you are good and that you give us this word, this instruction from Jesus to bring us to our senses. Father, help us grow in knowing what it would look like to be people and to be a community that is about declaring your worth and pointing each other to the beauty and the surpassing loveliness of Jesus. May that be true of us. Thank you, Jesus. Open our eyes more to see your glory and your greatness and your goodness, that you would indeed be hallowed in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.